This is January 19th, 2020, and uh, I'm going to go back this morning to uh, an old Buddhist text, uh, Teaching of the Buddha. Uh, it's, it's called 28 Benefits of Meditation, and I'm sorry to say I can't find the book where I, uh, where I photocopied this from. I just found this in my files, and uh, so there we are. So, <clears throat> so it, 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 uh, the introduction is, is typical of uh, one of the old Buddhist sutras. Uh, King Melinda once asked the sage Nagasena, why, if the Buddhas have already obtained full enlightenment, Buddhas just means the enlightened ones, if they've already attained full enlightenment, they can nonetheless continue to meditate. Nagasena told him that the Buddhas continue to meditate not because they have anything left to do or anything to add to what they have already accomplished, but because they have perceived how numerous are the advantages of meditation. <clears throat> uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a really um, sign of genuine awakening if someone continues uh, sitting earnestly afterward, uh, it's just, there's no doubt that uh, there's still work to do. I never quite made this point in yesterday's workshop, but uh, awakening doesn't just uh, eliminate all of one's flaws, one's blind spots and uh, and uh, problems. Uh, what they do, what awakening does, is it reveals the emptiness of all of one's flaws. That is, the that they have no roots to them. Our 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 uh, personal failings, if you could say, our weaknesses have no roots to them, and so there's nothing that we have to resign ourselves to. So. When, because awakening reveals that, uh, then we find ourselves in a position to want to continue to, to do those things. This is what masters in, in China and Japan, Korea have, have uh, reiterated over and over, over the centuries, that a, a, an awakening experience still leaves habit forces. <clears throat> habits, and by habits, we don't just mean uh, personal habits like smoking or uh, things like that, overeating, but, but uh, the, the forces of reactivity that have been uh, ingrained in the mind, in the body, our, our tendencies, our dispositions, our propensities continue to operate uh, after awakening, I, or maybe not after full awakening, but who knows about what that is through experience. These things continue to uh, make uh, present themselves. Um, I think of uh, the story of uh, Harada Roshi. Harada Roshi in Japan was Roshi Kaplow's first primary, primarily his first teacher. He spent six months with another one first, but then he spent three years with Harada Roshi. 
And uh, at that time, Harada Roshi was in his 80s, I think, and uh, he told the younger Kaplosan that as a young man, he had had a terrible anger. Uh, he just he, he said he was, he was afraid that he would have killed someone had he not got into Zen practice. <clears throat> but he, he used that energy, and anger always, anger is just a form of energy, uh, after learning to sit, he used that energy to probe the mind, to, to he channeled it uh, through zazen, meditation, and uh, as a result was had a first awakening experience, a, a kensho experience. And, uh, but he said after that kensho experience, it took him another 10 years before he felt free of his anger. Who wants to hear that? What we want to to hear is that we have this awakening experience and then we're home free. No more problems. No more forms of of ill will or greed or delusion. It doesn't work that way. Uh, But even though it doesn't, it doesn't transform, awakening doesn't transform our life, it does establish the basis of, trans, of, of transforming our life, for transforming our life. The basis being that there's nothing to these habit forces. As persistent and uh, troublesome as they are uh, and seemingly intractable, these tendencies we have, whether it's anger or, or problems with sexuality or um, depression or anything else, uh, they ultimately have no substance to them, and therefore we can, if we continue, we can work through these things, little by little, usually. <clears throat> There's so many stories of great masters like Hakuan. We just recited the chant and praise of sitting, praise of Zazen by Hakuan, and uh, other truly uh, illustrious Chinese, Korean, Japanese masters who went on sitting hours a day after even quite substantial enlightenment experiences because they just, they knew that it's a matter of of going on and polishing one's understanding so that one can move through life with this this true nature of ours uh, with, with greater luster. There's remarkable stories of these masters. Hakuan, I always think of, after a dozen enlightenment experiences, he would sit through the night uh, with, and you can be sure he wasn't uh, sitting half-heartedly with Hakuan. All right then, so, in this old text, uh, 28 Benefits of Meditation, uh, these are the 28 good qualities of meditation listed uh, that by um, this Nagasena. And these, these 28, uh, there's some overlap. Maybe you could, you know, whittle them down to 22, but we'll, we'll get to that. The first is meditation preserves the one who meditates. And I'll just I'll pair it with a second. It gives long life. 
It preserves the one who meditates. By by uh, doing this on a daily basis, it uh, we 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 preserve our physical and mental health by harmonizing the body and mind. The body and mind. It's not something we do. It's something that happens through long, sustained meditation over years. Is the body and mind coming to harmony? And uh, probably there are fifty studies now that you could find if you Google them that that show the the physical and mental benefits of uh, long-term meditation. There's also a phrase that sprang to mind when I read this line, preserving the one who meditates, uh, is uh, the the phrase conserving energy. This is something, I've not seen that very translation in Japanese text, but in Chinese texts, uh, more than a few of the Chinese masters have this refer to this in their talks. It conserves energy. Conserves energy because, well, to put it another way, that our habit of unnecessarily thinking uh, saps us of energy. And so, if we're if we're doing good meditation, we're less less bound by thoughts, and uh, as a result, we have more energy. Um, this is, you can confirm this by going to Sashin, especially a long Sashin. Uh, by the end, even though you may be tired from sleep deprivation, there is a way in which uh, our batteries are charged. And it's because we're less bogged down by thoughts. The mind is streamlined it's it's uh our our energies are gathered together uh, through concentration that's what concentration means it means to gather together or to collect uh, and the second one it gives long life well let's maybe someday there'll be statistics long about the length of life of uh, long-term meditators uh just Casually, I think back to uh, again. Harada Roshi was in his nineties. Roshi Kaplow was ninety, um, and and you you read about others, but I don't know. Uh, then there's Dogen, one of the greatest of the Japanese masters who died at the age of fifty three from uh, they say from tuberculosis, uh, but but. Anyone who's done this for a long time can appreciate that it uh, it gives you it has to give you a greater vitality and and uh, by integrating the body and mind and uh, not to mention just uh, settling the mind no no doubt blood pressure <coughs> uh, drops and <coughs> all kinds of things happen as as a result of the calm. Number three, endows one with power. Well, this is somewhat related to the phrase I just said about conserving energy. That uh, uh, any time we, we, are, we are acting with greater concentration, uh, we'll be doing so with greater power. But then there's also the power of... The power we experience when we're not... 
um, caught in thoughts about ourselves. See the power of no self, the the power that's released when we. So was it William William Blake? He refer, had this phrase, "Mind forged manacles." When we are released from these mind forged manacles of thought and ideas and concepts about ourself, then uh, there's great power that comes from that. Getting out of the way of the self. Number four, cleanses faults. Yeah, many of you have heard from from this seat, uh, you've heard me speak of the close connection between meditation and morality. Uh, it is it is <clears throat> through a meditation practice that we we. Uh, fortify our resolve not to cause harm and uh and and even maybe in a more fundamental way through long-term meditation we we snip the tendrils of what are called the three poisons greed ill will and delusion in other words we through long-term meditation uh we we little by little dissolve this sense of a self standing apart from others. And, and in the process of that, we are less inclined to want to act uh, self in a self-centered way in any of these three ways. The many, the many uh, forms of greed, uh, the many permutations of ill will, hostility, anger, uh, irritation, annoyance, resentment, rage, and uh, because all of those things are uh, grow out of a sense of uh, self and other, uh, an other uh, standing apart from oneself, and that that gets softened as we go on. Let me just make sure it's clear: all of these benefits are not just. It's framed here in the introduction as as uh, why the Buddha and the enlightened ones continue to meditate after enlightenment. But these are, these are benefits for anyone short of, short of enlightenment. And the next two, uh, remove, removes bad reputation, and then number six, and replaces it with good reputation. I see this is, is just related to the previous one, cleanses one of faults, uh, that when you're, when you're hurting people less, when you're acting less out of greed, ill will, and delusion, and you're, and you're causing harm less, that's, uh, you're going to have a better reputation. Number seven, destroys discontent. And then, then the one, the next one, and and fills one with contentment. This is a, a really basic one that anyone who can stick with this practice long enough will will find is true. <clears throat> there was a Taoist sage, 
by the name of Wei Wu Wei, who said, Why are people so unhappy? Because 99% of what they think about is themselves, and there is none. No fixed, unchanging self that we're stuck with. This, what we call the self, this this conglomeration of thoughts and memories and associations uh, is, 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 is something we can reform, that something that changes through our disciplined uh, daily meditation. It destroys discontent to the degree that we uh, are less driven by our our cravings and our, our seeking. Uh, another of the great Taoist Shuangzi said, happiness is the absence of striving for happiness. It's true that, that happiness is a byproduct of long-term meditation, but so long as we're... we're uh, trying to uh, get it, get happiness for ourselves, then our efforts will be uh, contaminated and uh, we're going to probably be dis- discontented. The next one, uh, meditation re- uh, releases one from fear. And the one following it is, and endows one with confidence. Well, let's first uh, suggest that fear and anxiety have, uh, I'm told to, to, to no small degree, they have biological causes. That uh, some people are just wired f- to have more anxiety and, and kind of lumping anxiety with fear. Um, so there's not a lot we can do about the basic physiological reactions that will cause us to feel anxious or, f- or frightened. Um, but but what? I have found is that whatever whatever our kind of our baseline of anxiety or fear is and and, and the 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 emotion uh, is reinforced by thoughts by thinking thinking binds us to fear and anxiety there's the just the initial uh, reaction the anxiety or the fear and uh, and then it is. It is. Uh, it's. It's reinforced to the degree that we are dwelling in our thoughts, that we are um, ruminating about it, and then this can be in the future. Of course, we can have anxiety or fear <clears throat> about future things. So, so many people are live with anxiety uh, because of just thinking about what could happen in the future. 
catastrophizing. And it comes down to dwelling in their thoughts about the future. Now, we this is different from uh, a sort of natural startle response uh, that is seems to be wired in our again in our biology. Uh, no matter how enlightened you are, I would be surprised. Let's say if if a Hakuan or a Dogen were walking down a narrow, narrow alley at night and someone jumped up. Uh, that's just that's we're just wired that to to be startled for a minute. Well, that's one thing, just the biological startle response. But then, it, that's very different from uh, getting caught in one's thoughts about uh, what could happen and how long one one dwells in that in those states. I love this, these words of David Mamet, the playwright. He said, worry is just interest paid on a debt that never comes due. Fear also is going to, we're going to be more um, vulnerable to fear uh, to the degree that we see ourselves as separate from others or from the outside world, then we're more likely to uh, see the outside world as menacing, threatening in some way. <laughs> what springs to mind is uh, this uh, this guy uh, who they made a documentary called Free Solo about this wild man, young man who uh, climbed, is the first to climb El Capitan, this this sheer cliff out in uh, one of the national parks, Yellowstone or Yosemite. And uh, he did it without, but, but this is the first one to do it without any kind of, of uh, safety uh, devices, just himself on a sheer cliff for hours. Um, it's it's an absolutely stunning example of someone, and they they did as part of the documentary. They put him in a uh, MRI uh, thing, and they they looked at his brain, and he was speaking of biology. Uh, he was remarkably his brain just didn't react the way our brains react to fear and anxiety. So there's that. It's always the biological. Um, confidence releases one from fear and endows one with confidence. Uh, the opposite of confidence, we could say, is self-doubt. And what is self-doubt? But a thought. This is what I'm always telling people who are getting ensnared by self-doubt and say, it's a thought. That's all. You're not seeing yourself as you are. You're 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 snagged in a in a in a in a thought, and like it's like every other thought. Just don't dwell in it, and you'll be all right. Uh, Eleven and twelve removes removes sloth and fills one with zeal. 
Yeah, this maybe is somewhat related to what we said earlier about <clears throat> when you uh, can be freed from uh, thoughts that cling to the mind, then you have more energy. Um, thoughts, thoughts create resistance uh, to acting. Uh, thoughts create resistance to fulfilling our intentions. Um, we just began another uh, term intensive, five-week term intensive. Uh, this is, for you who don't know, this is a, uh, a period of time where people who participate uh, pledge to uh, step up their discipline, starting with, uh, with sitting, and then can be other things, diet or exercise or study. And... Uh, uh, what 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 is the resistance to following through with what we commit to? It's it's thoughts mostly. What's the resistance to getting into a cold shower? Uh, thoughts. Maybe a little experience too, but. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then the next three refer to what we said earlier, the three poisons. Uh, t- it t- takes away greed, takes away ill will, and takes away dullness. Uh, greed, uh, the, the word that is used here in this old text from, pff, who knows, the fourth century before Christ uh, is uh, takes away lust and this would be especially salient to the monks who practice at that time uh, but let's let's go with lust for a minute lust is a form of greed uh, t- what I would say is it takes away the compulsive element of sexual desire not the desire itself uh, that capacity to feel sexual desire does not disappear with Zen practice, but it, the compulsiveness behind it, to whatever degree there is compulsiveness, is uh, relieved. But then in a broader sense, what I, what I would say, especially for us householders, is it takes away uh, greed, little by little. Greed is so... All three of these, greed, ill will, and delusion, these are things we're going to have to, as far as I can tell contend with until full enlightenment to one degree or another uh, but it, it it daily practice is a way of just sanding away these three poisons uh, little by little and then with uh, an awakening experience it's a, a bigger bite into them uh, with and then one goes on with still more to do it takes away ill will Well, ill will, uh, reactivity, reacting uh, with anger, annoyance, irritation, hostility, rage, resentment, uh, wrath. Uh, what happens is that we, 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 we find through 
long-term med- meditation, we find a little space opening up between the the uh, the, the provocation, such as we see it, between the stimulus and the reaction. We get a little freedom in that space. We're not just reacting immediately out of out of our habit forces blindly reacting but we have just a split second there where we have some ability to choose uh, how we're going to respond that's enormously significant little space that opens up in other words it's a little a little a little daylight of self-awareness okay here we go again. Here's my tendency to react. And then there are all kinds of things you can do to settle down when you uh, feel the anger coming on. And it takes away dullness. Uh, the, the other word is delusion. Uh, we become more clear through a lot of sitting, years of sitting, um, we're not, uh, what did Shakespeare say? We're not lost in the pale cast of thought. We're more alert, more, more in touch with things and the direct experience of things rather than our thoughts. 16, it puts an end to pride. Uh, there are two kinds of, of, what he calls pride. Uh, one is thinking that you're somehow better than others, and the other kind of pride is the thinking that you're worse than others. In Buddhism, these are both seen as as pride. That you're this, there's something special about me. I'm worse than others. I'm inadequate. Others are better. Others are smarter. Others are whatever. That's a kind of pride when he drill down to what's underneath it and then the more obvious kind of feeling of superiority and both both come from a sense of separation <clears throat> separation from others 17 breaks down doubt doubt is considered the the worst, the most, the most formidable of the what are called the five hindrances, um, because the other four—desire, aversion, restlessness, and torpor—these uh, will be uh, dissolved through ongoing meditation. But but doubt can uh, can derail our meditation. It can throw us so that we're not meditating. But then doubt doubt diminishes through the experience of finding that it passes. By, by, by facing our self-doubts and doubts about others uh, and passing through them, see that they are just thoughts that pass, then this builds faith. Faith that nothing, we're not stuck with anything. We're not stuck with anything. Number 18, it makes one's heart at peace. <coughs> and uh, the next one makes the mind tender. 
It's a wonderful word for what happens over years of practice. Dogen uh, has asked, what is the what is the purpose of Zen practice? And he said, to develop a tender heart. It's not the first thing many people think of with Zen practice. It seems uh, kind of uh, rigorous and requiring a lot of discipline, kind of Spartan and spare. And and yet out of that, out of that, if it's, if it's valid, will come uh, a, a tender heart. Tender because we increasingly see others as ourself. And, and even in a, in a deeper sense, we, we see that, 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 that people, everyone is suffering in her or his own way. And if anyone thinks they're not suffering, just look more closely. There's so many kinds of suffering. And and in a way, it all comes from ignorance. Ignorance of the true nature of things. You can also feel a, a kind of, through practice, uh, an increasing poignancy of the fact that we're all on the same in the same boat of impermanence. We're all moving inexorably toward death. And and this itself inspires a feeling of tenderness, the fragility of life. Twenty, uh, meditation makes one glad. I think of uh, glad, okay, I think gratitude might be more of what I'm grateful for through practice. Makes one sincere. 21 makes one sincere. I I see the word sincere uh, as meaning uh, we do things, we respond and we do things completely with with an undivided mind. Not... um, holding back something in the mind, having thoughts of of uh, not being split in, in our responses and what we do, wholehearted, pure. And next one, it creates advantages. Um, I think that's too broad and vague. I'm just going to skip over it in the interest of time. 23, it makes one worthy of reverence. Well, for... Uh, all the reasons, the foregoing reasons, we develop these qualities of character and uh, dignity and and um, virtue. Yeah. The next one, it fills one with joy. Here, maybe there's some 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 deficit with the English language because joy can be understood as a kind of wild, un, unrestrained, almost a delirium, like the joy, what are those old commercials, uh, Publisher's Clearing House, <laughs> where they show up at the front door and they say, you've with the cameras, you've won, uh, and people go insane. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Joy here is a the kind of quiet, 
deep, centered, centered joy that's beyond the, the, the poles of joy and ordinary joy and despair. 25 fills one with delight. By, by uh, freshening the mind every day with meditation, uh, we see things, even ordinary things, uh, in, a, in a fresh way and even with delight. 26, it shows the transitory nature of all compounded things. This is uh, just an old, old Buddhist language vocabulary. Um, seeing that everything that has, uh, everything, period, everything is transitory. It's all passing. Everything is in flux. This becomes more and more clear the longer we sit. And there are great implications, things that come from that. If we have a sense of of the uh, fragility, the, the the impermanence of everything. It's uh, a little harder to get really become captive to old reactions to people and situations. We it, we develop a little detachment, a little distance. We tend to see the big picture, which is always a good thing. Twenty-seven. It puts an end to rebirth. Well, if you think of rebirth as like reincarnation, something that happens after the death of the physical body, then uh, since none of us can remember that, that happening, uh, I guess. <laughs> if you do remember, let me know. Um, <laughs> but it, but with that part, if you think of rebirth that way, then we just take it on faith that that. Uh, uh, but but if we think of of um, rebirth as something that's happening moment by moment, this is what in Buddhism we call a continuous rebirth, the rebirthing, rebirthing of the mind body. Um, then then we see that that uh, there's always there's there's now let's see here. Puts an end to rebirth. Yeah, I think there's only one way to take that. That uh, that nirvana, and uh, I'll have to pass on that. I have no experience of that. Um, Twenty-eight. It obtains for one the benefits of renunciation. The benefits of renunciation. Now, he may be referring to the monastic life. Renouncing uh, the the world, worldly, the householder's life. Um, but I think the best way to understand renunciation is renouncing one's thoughts, one's one's random, irrelevant thoughts that keep sticking to us. Renouncing them. This is the the ultimate renunciation, because you can you can be living as a monk. And have your mind clogged with thoughts and with, with uh, the various forms of greed and hostility and delusion. But the real job, uh, and this is what 
we all have in common, whether we're ordained or not, is moment by moment letting go of our thoughts. Letting go. That's renunciation. And it's the secret of living and dying. They, they say people who work with those who are on their deathbeds report that that's really what it comes down to, being able to, to let go. And we also know this is, we learn this in Sashin. Uh, we, it's all, it's all training the mind in letting go, renouncing thoughts, unnecessary thoughts. Of course, whenever I say thoughts, I mean not thinking, problem solving thinking that we may often need to do. That's just, that's, that's a resource, thinking in an incisive way. But, uh, no, thoughts. Uh, thoughts that just just cling to the mind and do us no good at all, renouncing those. This is the secret of, of living a rich life just as it is the secret of dying. And then it just ends here, and this old text is saying, the Buddhas devote themselves to meditation because it is the road to all noble things and has been praised, lauded, exalted and magnified by all the Buddhas. And as you all know, the probably the word Zen means meditation. Zen, Chan, in India it's Dhyana. Um, Zen is the meditation school of uh, Buddhism, if, if, whether or not one is practicing, a, a practicing Buddhist. I will stop here now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow. Root Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.